The Lord be with you. Luke 11, the Lord's Prayer today, but first, lest I make too much progress in Luke, uh, a quick couple words about some of our hymns. Um, try to make a liturgical connection as, as often as I can. Uh, this past week, the church, like, there's a community Bible, E-free something church, like a quarter of a mile from my house where my neighbors go. And uh, they invited us, their, our kids to go to their vacation Bible school. And it's safe. Like, I was checking them out online. I'm like, make sure it's not going to be pushing too many rainbows on my kids, so to speak. And uh, they're totally, like, they're, they're basically Southern Baptist um, by, as far as their approach to um, social issues and, uh, and bi- certainly Bible-believing. But it's classic, you know, decision theology and all the critiques that we are bringing to, um, to, like, What's that, what's that massive one down on 59 and 10-something? Calvary? Well, further south in Calvary. It's like new, a new compass. I always try to find compass, but I can't find it. There's, there's another one over on Hobson and Naples. So that's, that would be of a similar, a similar persuasion. Which, by the way, I mean, I, you are bound to have neighbors from those traditions. And um, if they're... At least if they're consistent with those church bodies, you'll find them to be of like mind with a lot of things with you. I mean, obviously we're gonna, we're gonna disagree on, oh, I would say fundamentally, the, the bondage, what we would say the bondage of the will. That is, that I'm so fallen into my sin that I can't make a decision for Jesus. He has to choose me. So decision theology is obviously right out. And then also what flows out of that too is our understanding of the whole, all the sacraments why we baptize babies, um, why the Lord delivers forgiveness to us through, through a, the Lord's Supper, why we have confession and absolution. Those things flow out of an understanding that ultimately I am not making a decision for Christ. Um, my will is bound. I'm sinful to the core. And I say all that, so you're, so you, but they make, they're going to share a worldview with you in believing the Bible is God's word, um, and take it as seriously as, as we do typically. Uh, we, would, we would probably critique that they would err on the side of the law more than the gospel. That is, they're going to focus more on how to improve myself versus how to pre- preach Jesus into the sinner. Uh, anyway, so on Friday, like af- early afternoon, they had a, um, a uh, like closing ceremony where just like we do for our VBS and the kids, you know, they, they sing their songs, the, the, sing, the songs that they've been singing that week, which is a totally different experience to what we try to do in our VBS, but it was mostly a concert of, of what they had been learning. And, and you've probably got the same critique of, of like law, law, non-Lutheran hymnody, what we call hymnody. So if you worship with your Baptist cousin or something like this, outside of the old stuff, like the like tr- traditional American frontier stuff, like Amazing Grace, How Great Thou Art, that's kind of like held uniformly amongst American Protestant churches. The newer stuff that's, that's mockingly called 7-Eleven hymns, uh, seven words 11 times over and over, um, that's effective because it does, it does get the, that seven words in your head and if, if they're good words, 
They're not bad to have, you can have worse things in your head. So there's, I bet you I can put together seven other words you don't want, <laughs> you know? Um, but so, <laughs> but not here, not a, not a recording for sure. Um, but I say all that as there's a reason why our hymnody is what it, or it was trying to accomplish something different. Um, it's, it, we're not as interested in having some sort of experience and not even always for you to, to be able to sing one song and get it stuck in your head that you would just be singing those seven words all the time. But it's actually, the, the, the hymns are complex enough to, to teach complex things. Um, have you ever, maybe to, to make another food example, like you, if you're, you can, to use wine as an example, like you, you can just have, go, to, go, go to Napa and buy a $100 glass of wine and just slam it. You, will, you, will you taste wine? Yes. Will you appreciate its alcoholic sidekicks? <laughs> yes. But certainly if you, if you slow down, smell it, chew it, I think you can chew liquid, you know, work it around the back of your palate, identifying flavors. Like the more time you spend with it, the more it opens up and the more you appreciate within it. So such is the case with Lutheran hymnody that especially the, a lot of the hymns that we sing, we're confessing co complex ideas such as how the Christian is to understand suffering. Um, the, like we have hymns like the will of God is always best or a lot of the, a lot of the Paul Gerhard hymnody that's, that's looking at how God, how God has given me my days of gladness and I will trust him still when he sends me sadness God, my loving Savior, sends them. He who knows all my woes knows how best to end them. And in that one line, we have what we would call our theology of suffering, how we, we're trying to understand how, how a loving God could allow suffering. And, and we, we recognize that God is all-powerful. And if suffering is coming to me, it's because he's allowing it. He's, so we're, we're wrestling with, with the psalmist, with the hymn writers of the Reformation, we're wrestling with these complex ideas. So like today, our closing hymn, if you're at early church or what you'll be singing later, really all the hymns, some really great stuff, but I think the opening hymn, the opening hymn had some great lines in it too. Um, like kind of an end times, wisely fight for time is fleeting. The hours of grace are fast retreating. Short, short, is this our earthly way? When the Lord the dead awakens, or awaken and sinners all by fear and shaken. The saints with joy will greet that day. Praise God or triumph sure. We need not long endure, etc. So um, from the closing hymn, from God can nothing move me. He will not step aside, but gently will reprove me and be my constant guide. He stretches out his hand in evening and in morning. So he, he, he maintains all things by his powerful hand. My life with grace adorning, whatever or wherever I may stand. So he's with me everywhere I go. When those whom I regarded as trustworthy and sure have long from me departed, so we're right away just a convicting statement. All the things that we cling to and trust in this life will depart from us, which is, it's funny, like I was having the same conversation with uh, Marge Staffeld uh, last week or week before last. Marge, if you don't know her, I think she's our oldest living member at this point. She's, is she 100 yet? Very, very old, still living at home. 
And she'll, uh, we're always trying to get, oh, oh, really, really old people are fun to talk to. You get some really cool stories. I mean, they've got a lot of experience, a lot of wisdom, right? So I'll give you stories out of her. And she'll say how like the worst part of being old is that everybody that you know is dead. Like all your friends. Um, and you've, and you've kind of gone through life and you've seen enough of like presidential election cycles or social like media crazes or whatever the, whatever the things are. You've seen it happen almost cyclically and you've kind of learned where to put your trust and your hope and where not to put your trust and your hope. And that's the hymn. Uh, when those whom I regarded as trustworthy and sure have long from me departed, God's grace shall then endure. He rescues me from sin and breaks the chains that bind me I leave death's fear behind me, his peace I have within. So what he doesn't say is that when those who I regarded as trustworthy and sure have long for me departed, then God's going to step in and actually prevent earthly suffering. When the people who I trusted, like I was always hoping that, the, that maybe the government would ease suffering. They're going to come up with a solution to whatever the problem is. That's usually, that's one of our main go-tos, right? If it, when's the government gonna end the pandemic or end the, end the inflation? We're running to them for the solution to the problem as though they're the ones who are gonna solve it. Here, when all the things that we expected to solve our problems prove to be untrustworthy and ineffective, God steps in. And when he does, it doesn't, it's not that he ends the problem in the way that we would like, in the same way we're looking for the government to end the problem. He steps in and he says, I leave death's fear behind me. It's not that I've left death, but rather the fear of death is left behind me. See, it's a shift there. So that now we, we still, we face death like everyone else, but we do it without fear because of God's grace and his peace I have within. So this is another picture of like the theology of suffering and how we are to look at death and where we put our trust. It's, and it's a complex hymn because this only stands a two. And if you're not familiar with this hymn from 1530s, whenever it was written, 1550s, um, you're, you're like in the second stanza, you're still figuring out how to sing the thing. It takes you like four stanzas to get your like mind around the quarter notes and the jelly. And then you're singing the last stanza and then you close the bulletin and you never look at it again until next time. So I encourage you to do maybe as a take the bulletin with you and look at it later. Read it as a prayer. Let the theology of the hymn, let the wine open up, right? Let the theology, spend some time chewing on it and let the theology carry it. Um, we, as Cantor Sweat would tell you, I mean, now we've picked up another pastor who's a hymn snob like me and Pastor Schumacher. And so now poor Cantor Sweat's got to like deal with uh, three pastors. Like, let's do this. No, let's do these stanzas. No, cut that stanza. I never liked that stanza anyway. Use this stanza. No, move that over here. Because Sweat's very patient. I was like, okay. <laughs> I'm not going to push print. We're not, you know, Tom. And then all that has to go to Tom. Tom puts our bulletins together. Quite well. Which, can we take a moment and round of applause for Tom Mueller? So I mean, this, this congregation's been through like, you know, we had, we had worship secretaries, I think it was one of Phyllis's old job, then we had like music secretaries and it's been shifted around. And for a while, like Cantor was, Cantor, uh, Giuliani was juggling a lot of different things, trying to get the bulletins together. And now we've got this well-oiled system where we go over the bulletin on Tuesday with pastors and Cantor. And then like, we give it to Tom and Tom works his magic. So you got an experienced organist, a lifelong Lutheran, 
who's looking at these hymns saying, you know what? This hymn doesn't work here, and here's why. If we have people standing up during the Lord's... This, this hymn ends with a triune reference during the Lord's Supper. And so people like Mike Walsh will stand up, and no one else will stand up. And Mike's standing up, and then he, is Mike going to remember to sit down? Or like, how, how do we handle some of these awkward things? As lifelong Lutherans, you're like, what are you, Trinitarian? You stand up, you sing, and you sit back down. Get over yourself, right? Um, but like, we're, we want to be mindful of the visitors. So think about some of these things and we're putting the bulletins together. And, and uh, so Tom, we're thankful for Tom to help us. You imagine the amount of time that it takes to make sure. So like if you're singing a hymn and there's a page turn, like at a weird place, you're having to keep going back and forth. So you can't put a hymn in certain places. So things have to be carefully crafted, which means it's going to bump the hymn over here to the weird page. And we can't have the creed cut in all these different things to think about. I'm like, yeah, I don't have to think about it. Tom, he's got it, right? So we're thankful. All right, Luke 11 today. We're, we're through the, the demon stuff. And on to, um, we just finished true blessedness. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Verse 28. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And then Jesus is going to really keep expounding on that point. Verse 29, when the crowds were increasing, so here's a picture, people were, people were drawing near, like, oh, who's that? Oh, the guy doing all the miracles? Oh, Jesus is here. Like, so people are gathering all around. And what's his, his opening line? You know, Welcome, so good to see you. This generation is an evil generation. <laughs> when he says this generation, he's not... We, his, first of all, it's like we got to unfold this word generation. Often in the New Testament, the word it's coming from the Greek word genos, which is also translated often race. So when, when you get a chosen, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, my favorite was like during the, the Black Lives Matter riots in downtown Naperville, like the, the next prescribed reading in the epistle lesson, like that next Sunday was, was from Paul, like you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. I'm like, that's the perfect timing for this, you know? Uh, it seems so awkward. We're all like super sensitive to the word race, especially in like, you know, was that 2020, like summer 2020? Uh, it's, can you say the word race? <laughs> like, how do we work? Out? Well, simply, it simply means, it's, it's from the word genos, where we get our idea of generations. So generations are those who ultimately are flowing out of a line, like a genealogy. So the genealogy that flows out of Adam and Eve, flows out of Noah. So when it's referring to this, this is talking about the line, the, the genealogy of believers. That's the chosen race, the chosen genos, the genealogy that flows out of Adam and Eve, believers in the Messiah. Here, when he says evil generation, he's talking about this evil line, this evil genealogy, an evil kind, you could say, an evil kind of person in this time. Why? It seeks for a sign, because they're always asking him to do miracles, and they're, like, they're not getting the point. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it, given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'll finish this paragraph and we'll come back and unfold it. Verse 31, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. 
For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, back to the sign. This is an evil, uh, this generation is an evil generation. Welcome to my speech, you are evil. It's, it seeks for a sign, but no sign. So what is a sign? Just, hang up. Sit on that word for a second. What is a sign? A confirmation of something? So that's what they're looking for is like some sort of evidence that, some proof. So that's, for confirmation, that would be equated with the word proof. But, but really, the word sign, it, it kind of means something else. I mean, so a sign, when you, see, when you see a stop sign, it represents something else. What is it? The law? Well, it, so it's been given to us by the law. But when you approach, when you approach a four-way stop, and there's a stop sign. It doesn't, the sign is actually, it's caught, it does something to you, right? It tells you to stop, it stops you. But it's also, it's something beyond itself it's pointing toward. There's an intersection here. There's danger right here. The sign that slow children at play, which is offensive to the slow kids. There's, there's slow, there's something, there's something up, there's something coming up here, right? So it, it is, it is something in itself. It is a, the sign is something in itself that's pointing to something beyond itself that does something to you. All that's kind of wrapped up in it, right? So Jesus does give a sign. He's just not, they're, they're constantly asking for a sign. No sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, I think helpfully, now Luke left this out. This is, whenever there's like Lucan, like subtractions, I, I didn't start thinking about this until Dr. Francisco mentioned it at uh, Theology on Tap last week. Like, remember that Luke, when he's compiling this, what, how, is he, how is Luke compiling this? Uh, by the eyewitnesses. So he's going around and asking everybody who was there, right? Um, get, getting, their, getting their input, kind of reconciling stuff. So uh, usually Luke's adding stuff in, but here he dropped out what Matthew 12 includes in this same, the sign of Jonah. Then he says, just as Jonah spent three days and nights in the big fish, so will the Son of Man spend three days in the heart of the earth. This like, this messianic prophecy, clear line of, of what the sign of Jonah is. But Luke leaves it vague. So what, what is the sign of Jonah? When you think the sign of Jonah, what, I, mean, I now just read to you Matthew, which kind of clouded your creativity. But what, is, what would be the sign of Jonah? So that's the, pic, the picture of Jonah is, so we recount that he went somewhere he didn't want to go and what, what happened there? So God sends Jonah to Nineveh against his will and then what happened? So yeah, the, I mean, the skip, what you just kind of like casually skipped over was, was maybe the most profound thing in the entire Bible. And what a helpful reminder to pastors, by the way. So Jonah shows up. He didn't like the people. Uh, he, he didn't want to be there. And he just said what God told him to say. 
repent for the next amount of days. God's going to destroy you. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, you didn't hear me in the back. I don't care. And then the entire Nineveh, which is massive, everybody repented. So God's word kind of does what he wants it to do, doesn't it? Even, it's not about the preacher or his whimsicalness or how passionate it is. It's just what, what the word, who sends, whose word is it, right? Does the thing. So in this sense, it seems like a major sign of Jonah is this remarkable preaching of the word that brings about repentance in the people. But then at the same time, when Jesus talks about the sign of Jonah, we also get this three days in the belly and rising again. So what's he referring to? I, Matthew gives us some clarity there, and I think it's safe to, it's not only safe, but wise to, to be consistent with Matthew there. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, but the people of Nineveh, like, they didn't all see him get spit out by the fish, maybe. Maybe, maybe they, over time they all knew where he came from. Maybe he was really stinky like fish, and he had a story, he had to tell them why. But it wasn't just the fish, but it was the, the great repentance. A sign to the people of Nineveh was the proclamation of the judgment of God. The, the imminent judgment of God, that, that, it, that was a message itself that brought repentance. So will the Son of Man be to this generation. So Jesus then comes as this proclamation of God's, the wrath of God. Because remember, he's talking to this evil generation that demands a sign. So Jesus shows up and he talks about this judgment that ultimately brings about the repentance. But then also he's, the, he's in the belly of a fish for three days, which is the message that brings about repentance. One of the handouts that I have, or the question on your handout, which I know what you're thinking, why are we gonna look at the handout we never have before? The handout's kind of for me, it helps me think through what I might be talking about today, but uh, number five on, your, on the front page of your handout, why is Jesus' referral to Jonah so significant for Old Testament credibility? Uh, as a New Testament apologist, a, uh, so one who defends the reliability and credibility of the New Testament, as we're, ta- we're talking about this topic right now, actually, in Theology on Tap. So if you haven't joined us, there's still a bunch of books available for free in the church office. We've only read 20 pages, and we're picking up again in, in early August. But uh, like August 10 or somewhere. I'll get it in the week at a glance. But anyway, the Bible's reliability is tied to like how many manuscripts we have, all the manuscript evidence, the, the, the length of time between the, the manuscripts and the actual preaching of that word. Uh, the, the relative like short time of history that's passed between the year 33 AD and now. So like it's, it's easier to make a case for the reliability of the New Testament. It's much, 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 much more difficult to make a case for the reliability of Genesis. Because we don't only, only, only based on the same arguments as we do for the New Testament manuscripts. So we've got little things like the Dead, the dead Sea Scrolls that bring a lot of reliability uh, to like the prophet Isaiah and as well as church history and tradition and all these wonderful things that give a lot of reliability to the Old Testament. There's a whole like field of Old Testament apologetic scholarship. But what's extremely and even more helpful is when the Lord God himself in the flesh, in the person of Jesus, makes reference to one of the key texts in the Old Testament that is rejected by higher critical scholarship. So higher critics, remember, are those who look at the Bible and say, well, when you look at the Bible, 
Some of it's might maybe the word of God, some of it's helpful advice, but ultimately you can't take it seriously because there's miracles in it. Right? So the like in the 1950s and 60s, a lot of the first wave higher critic scholars would, would they would like hold the validity of the New Testament. They would like they would allow for a resurrected Jesus, let's say. Uh, they, they allow for the miracles of Jesus in many cases. But then the, old, the entire Old Testament was suspect. I mean, Jonah and a fish for three days without scuba gear? Doesn't happen, right? Elijah's miracles, creation, creation in seven days. All these things are rejected by what masquerades as science. The ideology of scientism rejects these things because it hasn't witnessed them before, Right? Uh, and so the Old Testament was often rejected, especially in the 70s. That was the starting point, maybe at least in the Missouri Synod is when, when it hit the, everything hit the fan in our circles. But then when Jesus shows up and starts talking about Jonah reliably, now we've got a, we've got a reliable New Testament text quoting from God in, in the flesh, who's quoting from one of the key texts in the Old Testament that was often denied by higher critical scholars. So it's helpful when this happens because it, it, it just adds additional credibility to these miraculous Old Testament accounts. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, certainly. So he's using a familiar, he's using a familiar text um, in the same way as like when I'm teaching Bible study to, to the youth and I want to be relevant, so I have to quote Lady Gaga. I guess that was relevant 20 years ago, and now I don't know what you quote. I don't even, I don't even know what they listen to. But yeah, so taking something that they're familiar with to make the, the analogy. Yeah. Um, the queen, let's see, what else do I have? Well, let's, let's hang on, hang out in Nineveh for a second. My, my handout question number six, how did Nineveh repent? So I mentioned this already. This, as we, as we think about what's happening in Nineveh, the significance of that, it wasn't that the people, so the people, yes, they repented. They were putting on sackcloth and ashes at the command of the king, and they're all kind of repenting. But it wasn't, it wasn't like something, we, we look at that and say, Nineveh did the thing, so now they're getting the credit and they, now they won't experience the wrath of God as if it's something that they can hang their hat on. But ultimately, they're not repenting at all and they're not thinking about repenting unless what? Unless Jonah is sent. So the very sending of Jonah himself, the very, and the, then the preaching of Jonah is the gift of repentance. So we often can make the mistake of, of, of equating repentance as if something I have to do or it's something that I even can do. I thought about this yesterday. Uh, we were walking downtown, uh, looking at those trucks, you know, take your kids to walk around downtown and show them all the little truck exhibits or whatever. And like you pass the wonderful river walk where they've got the little, the water display that you keep your kids from falling into unless they drown. And then right next to it is a bunch of guys holding very offensive signs making a big scene in downtown Naperville. It's always pleasant. Uh, but these, this sign, one, one sign in particular said, repent and believe. And I, so of course, instead of spending quality family time, I want to go over and talk to this guy. But, but Mandy's like immediately grabbing my hand. No, 
stay with us. We love you. <laughs> uh, but I, I'm th- so I started thinking this thing through. Re- to say repent, disconnected from anything else, doesn't magically happen. But instead, it, it miscatechizes people on what repentance is. So every, you walk out of a football game, you walk out of a Cubs game, whatever, there's always some random guy on the side of the street with a sign that says, repent. But, and then what, what that does is it like, teaches people that, okay, if they even know what that word means, first of all. I mean, the, those who know what it means are likely either in the church already or they've left the church because of bigots, hypocritical jerks like him. <laughs> so this isn't helping. But the idea of repent doesn't happen magically by just saying repent. It's tied to the rest of God's word that's actually preaching both law and gospel. So it's, a, it's part of a greater message that actually does the repentance. In the case of Nineveh, it's Jonah coming and pre- unfolding the wrath of God. It doesn't say Jonah showed up, held up a sign that said repent and believe. Repent from what? Believe in who? You gotta unfold that thing. Now to be sure, the guy with the sign is saying, well, if you've, if you've thought about this long, my Josiah has done its job. I'm like, well, you didn't need to do the job on me. I'm already with you, kinda, you know? But the people you're shooting, your target audience doesn't know what your sign is getting at. All they know is you seem to be ruining a perfectly good park, right? Anyway, so when we think about repentance, we don't want to, we can't, we can't be thinking that it's something that we do. We kind of like work up in ourselves. But it's, it's only something that, that comes to us by way of gift in the same way as faith. Believe the gospel. Is, is faith something that you do? If believing the gospel is something you can take credit for, then it becomes a work. This is Paul's like entire point. If, if my faith is a work, but he just says, I'm not saved by works. I'm saved by grace through faith. So faith is necessarily not a work because we already ruled that out. So faith isn't a work. It's got to be a gift. So my believing in God is something that's given to me just as my repentance is. Which then, think about what that does for like the purpose of the pulpit. Um, Our goal in our conversations with our neighbors. It's not like we're trying to convince you to sin less. The The preacher simply proclaims God's word. And he works repentance according to his will, when and where he chooses and how he chooses, right? In the same way with the conversations we have with our friends and loved ones, right? On what is God's word? What's he, what's he turning us from? What's he calling us to believe in? But that has us thinking about, we gotta be so careful to guard against the idea that, that we're not saved by works, but you have to repent and believe, which is actually, in the, going back to VBS closing, Spiel, that was like one of the key speakers. He said like that exact sentence where faith is a wonderful gift, but you have to repent and believe it. I'm like, so no, is it a gift or not? I'm confused. If I, as soon as you say, you gotta, you just killed the gift, right? So it's proclaimed as fact. Jesus has died for you. You can even repent it as, you can, you can preach it as fact too. Repent, turn from your sins. But that's preached, that's the preached message that does the thing to the person. That's so the sign of Jonah is this, everything that's happening in Nineveh is this repentance that's being worked in the people. And just as it's happening with Jesus, he's walking along and giving repentance to people. The queen of, she, the, queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, so this is a reference to like 1 Kings 5, I think. Uh, 
The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. She hears Solomon, which is the, the, the posture, the word of, of the catechumen, the ones who are learning the faith. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The queen of Sheba, the queen of the south, who is a pagan, she's coming and she's giving honor to Solomon and the teaching of God through Solomon. So if somebody like her is giving all this respect to Solomon, why is it that you evil generation who are rejecting Jesus, who's doing all these signs, who's greater than Solomon? So the queen of Sheba becomes a testimony against those who are rejecting Jesus in this context. And likewise, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation to condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So he's talking to this evil generation that's refusing to repent, that's demanding a sign, and he's saying how the, the queen of the south and the people of Nineveh are going to rise up on the last day in the judgment to condemn this evil and wicked generation. So if I'm listening to this crowd, if, if I'm a part of this crowd that's listening to this message, and if I'm condemned just because I'm a part of this wicked and crooked and evil generation, why does Jesus bother saying this stuff? Unless he's saying it to give me what? Repentance and faith. It's, it's the reason behind the conversation itself. It's the rhetorical impact of they repented at the preaching of Jonah and now behold something greater is Jonah, something greater than Jonah is here. I'm talking to an evil generation that's rejecting the gospel, uh, demanding signs and, and still walking away from the gospel. Over here is this picture of Jonah who walks into Nineveh, proclaims the wrath of God and the people all repent and believe something greater than Jonah is here. You think Jonah can repent Nineveh? Look what I can do. And he's doing it in the, in the very speaking of this thing. Now, in the, same, in the same conversation, he's going to get to the Pharisees. I don't think we're going to get to it today, unfortunately, but they're, they're a key part of this crowd is those who have heard the Old Testament law and they're using it as a weapon instead of as a, for what, how God intends it. And they're certainly not trying to save people by, by the mercy of God. So we'll get to there in a second. But first, they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And then he jumps right in. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Now there's a, in your, in your New Testament, there's a break there, the, the, the heading, the light in you, and the way it's broken down in pericopes, unfortunately we can lose the context. But remember Jesus has just said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. He's talking, he's addressing this evil generation, talks about their need to repent, and then he gets into this light. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar. So this, this entire next section flows out of hearing the word of God and keeping it and what it means to repent and be full of the light of God. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar. Why? Now you take, the, you take a lamp into a cellar if you're going to be there, but you don't, especially, I mean, for us, we just flip on the, we don't think about these, you flip on the light switch. But if you're like, you're having to buy oil, and you're buying candles, 
and they, they cost money, which you don't have very much of, you're getting pretty conservative about how you're burning the candles. So what you're not going to do is, I, I get mad at the kids when they go in the basement, they play in the bed, and they leave the lights on because it costs me 25 cents. It's a different thing when you, you take the candle into the basement and you let it burn all night and it just burns out. You waste an entire candle. I don't know what the cost equivalent of that is, but I mean, to me, it's important. You don't, you don't take it into a cellar. You use it. You light a lamp to see in the, in the dark for all. And you certainly don't put it under a basket. Why? Same thing. People can't see it. But the basket analogy is even stronger. <laughs> the basket catches on fire unless it runs out of oxygen first, which is, you know, try, basically being an acolyte at Bethany, the kids are learning about is it, how science how fire needs oxygen to, to work. So you, if you're a sacristan, you can see the poor little acolytes from the side because our acolytes are like here and the candles are like eight feet tall and they can't see and they're, they're trying to reach it with a stick. And the cup is like, it's like at a 45 degree angle and the fire is just happily burning away and they think they're putting it out. They're just waiting. And we're like singing the hymn. You think he's gonna figure out it's not working. I don't know, let's see how long it takes him. So after a couple of years, the acolytes learn, oh, you got to, oh, okay. It would put out the fire. So it either sets the basket on fire or it actually kills it, right? So it's not meant to be put into a place where it burns out and does no one any good or, or puffs out, but it's meant to be put out on a stand, out in the open, so that those who enter may see the light. Or even... I mean, light is a great analogy, but so like, especially in their, in their context there, if you're in a very, very dark place at a time without street lights, street lamps and stuff, so you're, you're, only, you're drawn to the light. If you're out in the middle of the desert and you're looking for a place to stay, if that night and you see out in the distance a light coming from some house, it draws you to it. And then when you're within the house, it, it lights up everything that's there. It gives clarity and purpose to everything around you, I mean, in a real way, right? So you like, it, it, it's all the tools that are in your garage do you no good if, if you can't see them to use them. The light has to be on. So those who enter may see the light. When, uh, let's see, verse 34, your eye is the lamp of your body. So the thing body, we've got both our personal body and also we think body of the church. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. So we get a contrast between light and darkness and light coming in and lighting up the whole body is what's happening. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. So if what, I, if what I'm seeing, what's, what's coming into me by what I see is that which lights me up, I want to be careful with what I'm seeing. But also, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So it's not only to, to, to stay with the analogy of, of light entering the body. Light, in this sense, is entering our body by hearing, right? So faith comes, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So light that's entering the gospel, it's entering me through my body. So I want to be, be careful of what I'm seeing. Be careful what I'm hearing lest the light in you be darkness. This is certainly law that he's giving. But let's, let's put some application on that. What, how would you apply that? Be careful lest the light in you be darkness. Okay, 
What, what now? What, what do I do? Turn it into a kid's song? <laughs> That's true. Just sing that over and over again. Uh, it's probably in VeggieTales, I'm sure. Be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. Be careful, little eyes. Is it a song? I thought you just made it up on the fly. Did I actually sing the tune? Did I sing the tune? Was I even close to that right tune? I just totally made that up. I was? I was about to say, I don't know if that stays with the same theme of child song. But so it's not, I mean, again, it's, it's not bad to sing, and, and even this message is certainly there, but it is law. My point is, what are we guarding against? Be, so if that song indeed says, be careful what you see, be careful what you hear, uh, lest the light in you be darkness. So if the light in me is supposed to, like, t- to continue, if your whole body is full of light, having no part in the dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays give you light. So it becomes the lamp that's, that's in a room that draws people towards it, that fills up the room, gives it purpose and meaning, gives clarity. And all, all of, obviously all of this is in the, the greater context of the gospel itself, being the thing that fills us up, makes us bright, is to be shared with the neighbor, is to draw those who are in darkness toward the light and out of darkness, to help give clarity and meaning and purpose to their entire life. It's what the gospel itself does, right? But my question is, what are some examples of then, be careful lest the light in you be darkness? What would be the kind of things that make the light in you darkness? Now, by the way, how does light become darkness? It gets put out. So for the light in you to be darkness means what, what what kills the gospel. So... As a side note here, keeping in the theme of Nineveh and repentance, Jesus even saying this is the thing that's doing the warning. It is is the thing that's like strengthening a person against the darkness. It's turning us from our darkness. Uh, You could, to simplify it, look at good things, don't look at bad things. Touch holy things, don't touch unholy things. Listen to good things, don't listen to bad things. So like... This is, it's, it's good, it's, it's law certainly, but it's good law in the sense that if, if it's true that faith comes by hearing, so we want to fill up our ears with the good stuff that fills us, fills us up with faith. And then ultimately, as we know, as, as, we, as we consider sin, like the things that we see, the things that we hear, bring about, awaken sin within us, right? Cause more sin within us. It's an interesting thing, like, what, 20 years ago? When you go back and you read, I'm about to go off subject, I get, when you go off and you, you read, like, old you know, medieval literature and stuff and old medieval history, like, you certainly have the existence, even in the New Testament, you have the existence of homosexuality. It's certainly there. It's, uh, Paul describes it as a, um, a uh, like, a twisted, it's a, it's a good desire, to be drawn to another human to, as a spouse, but it's not good to be drawn to another human sexually who is not your spouse, whether it's your same sex or not, right? So when you take an idea like, like homosexuality and you just blast it to a five-year-old in kindergarten constantly, why are we surprised that so many kids all of a sudden are turning up gay? 
Or, or this, the concept of transgender, of people identifying as a whatever, a broomstick or whatever, whatever the latest craze is to identify as something that they obviously are not. But this, that, the entire concept, we're giving it to the kids. We're like, we've created this, we've, we've fabricated this bizarro thing that you can, be, you can be something that you're not actually. And then we tell you about it when you're seven, eight, nine, you're going through formative ages. And then you start to get this curiosity. Well, maybe I am a woman trapped in a man's body, which is a sentence that didn't make any sense 15 years ago. That, the, the, that I can say that in any kind of coherent way. But now we're saying it, we're teaching it to the children. We, it's being taught to the children in today's world as fact. We're, and, then, and then all of a sudden, everyone's coming out transgender. They're realizing, they're, see, see, we've been repressing it for hundreds of years, what was actually there. And now we just remove the repression and let, and let the reality of transgenderism run rampant. No, we're filling, we're, we're filling up these kids with darkness. And now, so of course darkness is coming. We're giving them the idea. So instead of filling up the ears and the eyes with unhelpful things, it's good to fill up our eyes and ears with helpful things. Now, there's a, there's a quick step towards what we would call pietism, right? So when does it stop? So I'm only going to ever, I'm only going to read Christian books. I'm only going to watch movies made by the guy, by Kurt Cameron. <laughs> I'm only going to listen to certain kinds of music in my car. Like, so that's, so we can fall off the horse on one side. I'm only going to go to a Christian car dealer because he's not going to try to gouge me. By the way, if the Christian car dealer doesn't gouge you, how's he going to feed his kids, right? So um, he's got to make a profit. But, but you, so there's a way that we do engage to, to listen to songs with a, with a discerning ear, to watch TV shows. You can't watch anything. Mandy and I just started some show on PBS, Grant Chester. So I'm like, of course there's a priest, Anglican priest or something. And for like three episodes, it was like tolerable. And of course, episode four, here it comes with the agendas. I'm like, oh. So you're watching these things with a discerning eye. So that's not to say don't, listen to the radio or don't listen to music don't watch anything on tv that's not made by kurt kim even if you do watch stuff by kurt cameron by the way you're, you're gonna you're gonna miss the gospel i should say um so even if you go see the ark museum like the reason why I mean, the youth are going to go to the ark museum with pastor barton's in a couple of weeks but if you've ever been there the last booth in both the ark, the ark museum and the creation museum are clearly pushing legalistic gospelist terrorizing stuff that is, con well, I would say, contrary to the scriptures. And so you have to be discerning, even when you're listening, when you're at a notoriously Christian theme park. So, so to be always discerning, knowing that darkness is always going to try to get in. So you can watch shows you want to watch, listen to stuff you want to listen to, but also be, be aware that, that is the, that's how the devil is trying to get in, right? It's amazing how, how if, if you you spend your college years memorizing all of the Nelly rap songs. It's amazing how quickly certain words can come out of your lips that you didn't intend for them to come when they drop a hammer on your toe or something, right? I, I, I taught myself all these words. Where, where have I heard all these words? Where did I get all these? I, so I mean, to use, to use the, the analogy of the idea of transgenderism, right? So we, it's all, walk in the public library. Do me a favor. If you all join with me in this effort, we can do some good in Naperville. Every time you walk in the Naperville library, 
go to like to the new releases or the kids section and like every single book in the front that's about four feet off the ground is pushing an agenda. So just raise it up to a higher level or turn it backwards or both, right? Every time you go in. In fact, go downtown Naperville for the purpose of doing that. Because it's like, they're clearly trying to inject the darkness in the kids. So when, the kid, when, you go, when your kids grow up after hearing so much about all these things, why are we surprised when they start struggling with those things? You can't protect them. So there's the analogy, you can't protect them from the world forever, but you certainly want your kids to know how to swim before you throw them into the river, right? So before you expose a five-year-old to transgenderism, let's, let's maybe wait until they're ninth graders or something. We can actually lay a foundation. Anyway, that's a tangent. Um, but so we want to be careful that what we see is, is not dark. To, to even use, to, to stick with the theme here, we want to make sure that the gospel is actually proclaimed clearly and rightly, and that the law is proclaimed clearly and rightly, that the word of God is actually taught in its truth and purity. That is the clarity that's coming through the eye or through the ear. It's the, the, gospel, the word of God being taught in its truth and purity is the thing that, that, that brings the light into us, okay? So not, I went down the, the legalistic strain for a second. I mean, that's, that's a good legal, it's a good warning for all of us, right? We're always being drawn to darkness, like, like mosquitoes to a bug zapper light outside. But we want to be sure to, to guard against that, to be careful to guard against that instead. Fill up our ears and eyes with that which is light. Knowing, knowing by the way, that repentance and faith come as gift through God's word, and that we would guard carefully against God's words being, twi- being twisted and made uh, unclear, made dark. Which is why you're, you're, uh, if you ever ask a pastor a question, you know, you never get a short answer. Pastor, what is it? You know, you want like a yes or no answer. You're, not, you're, never, you're just never going to get a yes or no answer from a pastor. You have to be, these things are always like carefully unfolded for you because we realize there's... At any one point, there's people in our congregation who are hearing different kinds of messages from different, different places. Different, their spouse is saying something. Their, their, their home pastor, the pastor they grew up with was saying something. There's all these different influences on an individual. We're, we're trying to be faithful in, in teaching God's word clearly and rightly. That's why we're super critical about stuff. Like, uh, why is pastor always micro? He's critiquing every hymn that we sing. I was in the nursing home last week and Somebody said, can we sing Amazing Grace? I said, no. <laughs> they said, why? I said, because I don't like it. Because my job is to be like super critical and careful about all these things. You can sing Amazing Grace, whatever. You can like Amazing Grace. I'm just saying that that's why pastors and you maybe, you certainly are probably this way too. Like we can be extra discerning and critical about the kinds of things that we're reading. The gospel, when you pick up a, a devotion, when some, some random guy downtown Naperville hands you a tract that says, Jesus loves you, here's a tract, you're like, I know Jesus loves me, I don't need your tract, buddy. Keep your, keep your hidden agendas to yourself. Because we're kind of discerning it. There might be something in here that maybe isn't helpful. That's not a bad instinct. Because we know that that's how darkness kind of gets in. You know, not, that, not that that guy's trying to be dark, but we're saying we just need to be discerning with everything that goes in to our bodies, to our ears, to our eyes. Next week, finally, we'll get to the Pharisees in verse 37 and get Jesus' Jesus's rant against the, the hypocrites and the little hypocrites in each of us. So look forward to that. The Lord be with you.